Our scripture this morning is found on page 7 in your bulletins. Be Psalm 137 from the New International Version. First, please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that if you have preserved it for us through the ages. Thank you that our experiences and emotions are reflected in your word. Bless Pastor Jim as he preaches and each of us as we listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. The word of the Lord. I was wondering how many of you would respond when we said thanks be to God. (laughs) After our reading today, it sounded like uh, a number of you did, uh, but if you were unsure... Uh, Let me just assure you that you are not alone uh, in this room today. Uh, We're looking at a a hard text as uh, we continue in our summer psalm series. And uh, I think there there are two equal but but opposite errors that we can fall into when it comes to the final verses of this psalm. On the one hand, we can dismiss them as a kind of retrograde religion, encouraging maybe our, our worst instincts for, for vengeance and, and for revenge. On the other hand, uh, we can embrace these verses simplistically and maybe use them to, to gleefully gloat over our own enemies. And I want to suggest today that, that we need to, to struggle with this psalm uh, without dismissing it or too easily embracing it. Uh, this is because it's, it's in the Bible. It's a part of Scripture, and here at Geneva, we try and take the, the whole Bible seriously and, and wrestle with things that are, that are hard for us to understand. But it's also because uh, the cries of pain that we hear in this psalm are in our human experience, whether we want to admit it or not. And uh, we wrestle with our anger often over wrongs that have been done to us. So that's our subject for today, is, is how do we pray our anger? Some of you may remember a, a court case that was in the news about 10 years ago uh, after the stockbroker, uh, Bernie Madoff, was arrested 
for perpetrating the largest Ponzi scheme in history. Uh, he was convicted of defrauding his clients of, of almost $65 billion. Over decades, uh, he took the money of, of hundreds, thousands of people, and he pretended uh, to invest it in the stock market, but really he was just using the money to, to fund his own lavish lifestyle. Uh, the victims of his scam included wealthy and famous people, including a number of, of charity foundations, but there were also many uh, everyday people who were depending on their investments with Madoff uh, for their retirement. They invested their, all their savings uh, with him. In, in, the in the sentencing phase of the trial, uh, prosecutors submitted 113 victim impact statements uh, to the judge. You know, the, they have the opportunity, victims do, to, to speak a word before the judge passes sentence. And uh, they presented these victim impact statements. And let me just share a few of, you, of these with you uh, today. Uh, the first one, uh, Dear Judge Chin, I am 76 years old. I have served my country in the Korean War, and I've been a good tax-paying citizen. I was recommended to Madoff in 1997. I had two other investment counselors, but Madoff outperformed them every year, and so I moved all my money, all my, uh, my whole IRA, to Madoff. I am now destitute. We had to sell our home at a very reduced price to avoid foreclosure. We are now living in one room uh, in our daughter's house. I cannot pay my long-term health insurance. I had to give up my car, and we are applying for food stamps. Our lives are a nightmare. My wife is suffering emotional problems because of this tragedy. Mr. Madoff has committed a crime against humanity, considering all the lives he has wrecked, along with charities he destroyed. He should be made to pay for his wicked deeds. Uh, here's another. Uh, Dear Judge Chin, I am a direct investor with uh, Bernie Madoff. All the money that my husband and I saved for our retirement has been lost due to the fraud uh, that Madoff perpetrated on us. My husband has now died, and I must live solely on Social Security and the help of my family. Uh, Bernie Madoff should be sentenced to the full extent of the law. No mercy should be shown him, as he did not care what he did to so many other people who put their trust and relied on him. Another, dear Judge Chin, I am writing to state how Madoff has affected our lives. My father and I had our life savings invested with him. Uh, hearing from the SEC that he was a safe broker, we thought we were okay with leaving our money with him. Uh, we now have nothing. Only living off Social Security, I told my father, aged 89, he could not die because I didn't have enough money to bury him. This is what we are reduced to after Madoff lived so well off all of our money. He ought to be able to look forward to just exactly what he has done to us. No hope, no future, and no forgiveness. And just one more here. Dear Judge Chin, as you are considering what sentence will be justice for Mr. Madoff, I know you will be reasonable. I know your decision will be dictated by fairness. As a victim, a person swindled and deceived by Mr. Madoff, my hope is you will hold him responsible for his reprehensible wrongdoing and assign him a punishment that is equal to the irreparable damage he has caused. What is an appropriate sentence for Mr. Madoff? He is a thief of the worst kind that stole 365 days a year for decades. He is a thief that robbed thousands and thousands of people of their financial security, their fruits of years of hard work. 
He is a thief that stole dreams and ideas. He is a thief that stole indiscriminately, young, old, rich, poor, charities, friends, family, retirement funds, feeder funds, the list goes on. He is a thief that saw himself as entitled and superior. He is a thief with no sense of morality or humanity. I urge you to impose the maximum sentence on Mr. Madoff with the harshest of terms. After all, that is what he has imposed on us. This is what would be fair and just. This is what he deserves. These statements led the judge to sentence Madoff to the maximum sentence of 150 years in federal prison. And I want to suggest to you today, as we listen to those victim impact statements, that we can best understand Psalm 137 if we read it as a kind of victim impact statement in the courtroom of God, arising out of the Jewish experience of exile. In the time of the Babylonians, of course, there was no judge to whom the Israelites could bring their case. There was no international criminal court. There was no such thing as war crimes. The psalm cries out for justice to the only one who might hear their case, the Lord. So as we think about what it means to pray the psalm and and to cry out in this way, uh, it has some important things uh, to teach us about how to pray our own anger. Specifically, three things. Why we must pray our anger, how we should pray our anger, and what God does with our anger. Let's, Let's look at each of these. First, why we must pray our anger. This psalm Uh, is the most historically specific of all the psalms. Even if you don't know the history very well, you can basically get it here. The the psalmist is a a citizen of Jerusalem who's brought into exile in Babylon. This happened in the early 6th century BC uh, when the Babylonians destroyed the city and and forced a huge number of people to to migrate to Babylon. Uh, Their goal was to break the spirit of the Jews so that they could be more easily controlled and and assimilated. Uh, their strategy was one of terror. Now, the brutality of the Babylonians is, is well documented uh, because they gloated in it. Uh, they recorded their violence in these uh, huge carved stone reliefs that you can see today in, in the British Museum or, or at the Met in New York. Uh, they, they systematically destroyed homes and, and burnt cities. Their soldiers attacked women and children. And so before... Uh, Verses 8 and 9 are a cry for retribution. They are first a description of what the speaker has experienced uh, from the Babylonians. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is someone who had experienced this themselves at the hands of uh, these Babylonians. The the voice that we hear in the psalm is not the voice of a gloating oppressor, but the voice of the oppressed. They speak through tears while being tormented, uh, afraid that the the memories that they have of their home are, are fading away forever. Certainly when this psalm was written, the Israelites were in in no position to to act on their curse. Uh, They were the terrorized, the the humiliated, the violated victims of 
uh, the injustice, crying out to God. Old Testament uh, theologian Walter Brueggemann has said about it, perhaps this psalm will be understood and valued among us only if we experience some concrete brutalization. I think that's right, and, and, and this psalm assures us that God recognizes the voice of those who have experienced brutal acts of evil. But whatever our experience, this psalm is an invitation to open our heart to God with a, a shocking degree of honesty. Uh, Eugene Peterson writes, Embarrassed by the ugliness and fearful of the murderous, we commonly neither admit or pray our hate. We deny it and suppress it. It is easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs. It is somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hurts. It is nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. We must pray our anger because if we don't, it just builds up inside of us and, and comes out sideways. For many of us, this uh, begins with simply admitting when we are angry. I know in my own family of origin, we experienced anger, but we never talked about it. And so for many years, I would never say, uh, I, I am angry. I had a code word for it. I would say, I'm frustrated. The Psalms give us permission to, to name these dark emotions for what they are. By including this cry of pain, the, the Bible especially affirms the experience of victims. It, it doesn't deny the harshness of anger, but it gives it voice with tears from the perspective of the hurting. So, if this Psalm gives us permission to admit our anger, how, how should we pray it? Two points. First, we, we bring our complaint to the one who will judge all things in the end. The psalm is really clear on this point. Judgment is left to God. Verse 7. Remember, Lord. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. The Edomites were proxies of the Babylonians who acted on their behalf uh, throughout the war against Israel. And for God to remember something is for him to give attention to it in order to act later. The psalmist entrusts his complaint to God. This is an important point. He, he brings his cry for revenge to God rather than take matters into his own hands. The confidence that the Lord will act righteously in the future sustains the psalmist in his pain, but it also keeps him from the burden of, bringing, of having to bring ultimate justice himself. If you believe that God will remember what has been done wrong and will make it right, even if you don't understand in the present how he will do it, then you can pray your anger, trusting judgment into his hands. This is the basis of Paul's teaching in, in Romans 12, uh, verse 19. Uh, do not take revenge, he says, but leave room for God's wrath. Uh, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Because God will judge, you don't have to. 
So first, we, we pray to God. Second, we pray in community. When I lived in New York, I used to take a retreat uh, at a monastery in which the brothers prayed all 150 psalms every week. Uh, it was a remarkable thing to experience, even for just a couple of days, and it encouraged me for seasons to, to read the Psalter monthly. If you read five psalms a day, you can read uh, all the psalms once a month. And something that I've noticed in these practices is that they immerse you in the full range of human experience with God and with other people. Oftentimes, you are praying through an emotion or an experience that you're not having. And in uh, the book Life Together, which some of us are are reading this month, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes a valuable point about the significance of this. He says, even if a verse or a psalm is not my own prayer, it is nevertheless the prayer of another member of the community. It is quite certainly the prayer of the truly human Jesus Christ and his body on earth. When we pray the Psalms that do not touch on our own experience, we pray with our brothers and sisters for whom it is a reality. There are probably very few of us here in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, for whom Psalm 137 directly applies uh, as our voice, but we lift it up in community, sitting and weeping with those who weep with those in our own midst who have been abused, with refugees leaving Central America, with victims of war in Syria, with Christians in prison in China. As we pray a psalm like this, we move close to the hurting. And as we do, we're changed by the experience. Someone who I think shows us something of what this looks like is Brian Stevenson, uh, whom some of you are probably familiar with from his, his well-known TED Talk or his, or his memoir. Uh, Brian Stevenson is an attorney who spent his life working on behalf of the forgotten and the marginalized. Uh, he's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative uh, based in Montgomery, Alabama, which defends people trapped uh, in the criminal justice system, especially children, the poor, uh, the wrongly condemned. And in his memoir, Just Mercy, Stephen. Stevenson recounts story after story of men and women cruelly mistreated, uh, falsely accused, imprisoned, and and all too often wrongly executed. But the most remarkable thing uh, about uh, Stevenson is not his credentials, uh, but his character. Having seen what he has seen, he could be very bitter. But instead, he expresses compassion forgiveness, and gentleness. In his book, he talks about how moving near the broken has exposed his own brokenness and and taught him about our common need uh, for mercy. He writes, There is a strength, uh, a power even, in understanding brokenness because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy and a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are too hard to learn otherwise. You learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things you can't otherwise see. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. This is a a profoundly biblical insight. When we admit our anger... And when we bring it into relationship with the God of justice, 
He can transform our anger into mercy. This brings us to our, our last point, what God does uh, with our anger. Psalm 137 uh, doesn't identify who will repay the Babylonians or, or when it will happen. As we've said, the, the results of this prayer are, are entrusted to God. Uh, that God would respond one day becomes the Jewish hope uh, through the exile and, and through the oppression of the, the Greeks and the Romans that followed. Uh, they believed that God would bring justice to history's victims, uh, that one day he would bring vindication to the downtrodden. So you can imagine uh, the surprise of people then when Jesus began preaching as he did on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Jesus doesn't deny the reality of evil. He, he says, do not resist an evil person. There's still a place for accountability, for police officers, for judges, for courtrooms. Jesus calls us to name evil for what it is, but to respond with mercy. The, the best recent example of what this looks like that I know is, is the example of uh, last year of Rachel Denhollander, the, the gymnast who spoke up about the abuse that she and, and hundreds of other young women suffered at the hands of a gymnastics doctor at the University of Michigan, Larry Nasser. And when uh, he was sentenced last year, over 200 women gave victim impact statements uh, speaking about their abuse. And Rachel Denhollander uh, was the last to speak, and as a Christian... She was very attentive to the fact that Nasser brought a Bible uh, to the trial with him, though he didn't seem to take full responsibility for his actions. And she said to him in, in her statement, If you've read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace... I, too, choose to love this way. The Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and for you to be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak about carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should, should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt, so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. On the cross, Jesus makes forgiveness like this possible. He doesn't sweep our pain under the carpet. He doesn't dismiss it. He pays the price for it himself. He fulfills all righteousness and judgment in his body on the cross. In the words of Bonhoeffer, God's vengeance did not strike the sinners, but the one sinless man who stood in the sinner's place namely God's own Son. 
Jesus Christ himself requests the execution of the wrath of God on his body, and thus he leads me back daily to the gravity and grace of his cross for me and all enemies of God. The Son of God is dashed against the rocks in our place. Friends, this is a word of hope. There is a God, and he has not abandoned us or our world. In the gospel, we see his power to bring renewal and healing, even in the worst circumstances. And because this is true, we can bring our whole selves to him. Without fear, without despair, we can answer his call. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess that we hesitate uh, to come to you. Uh, We hesitate to show you our real selves. So we pray that you give us the boldness that we hear in the Psalms uh, to cry out to you and to bring uh, to you our heaviest burdens and to lay them at your feet. Even though we still often pray through tears, uh, we believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, and so nothing can stand against you and your love. Would you help us to live in the light of this faith, uh, to, to love as you love, to serve as you serve, and to give as you give. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.